No matter what you're a fan of, Texas has the trip for you. There's the trip to Texas and the trip. Or maybe you're the kind of fan who'd prefer a trip to Texas or a trip. Either way, go to TravelTexas.com slash get your own for the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. Introducing Celebration Key, your key to paradise. Unlock Carnival's all-new exclusive destination at Grand Bahama, where you can dive into clear lagoons, try all the water sports, or unwind on a mile-long, pristine beach with breathtaking sunset views. This vacation paradise has it all. Celebration Key, welcoming guests in summer 2025. Carnival, choose fun. Copyright 2024, Carnival Corporation. All rights reserved. Ships Registry, the Bahamas and Panama. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Well, if you are an American, you know about the Oregon Trail. Learned about it in in elementary school, in middle school, or you probably learned about it playing the uh, video game of the 1980s, Oregon Trail, right, where your family always dies of dysentery. Well, uh, it was a a big moment in American history, one of the largest mass migrations in human history, Uh, but a lot of people don't know that much about it. Well, my guest today decided, you know what? I'm going to cross the Oregon Trail in a covered wagon so I can learn more about this part of American history. His name is Rinker Buck. He's an author, journalist, and now one of the first people to cross the Oregon Trail in nothing but a covered wagon in over 100 years. And he did it. He made it all the way to Oregon along with his brother. And today on the podcast, we're going to discuss his book, The Oregon Trail, A New American Journey. We discuss some of the details about this very unique aspect of American history. We talk about the things that Rinker had to relearn, these lost skills that we've lost as a culture, things like how to handle mules, how to repair a wagon. He had to learn this on the fly in order to make this trip a success. And then we also talk about what he learned about being a man uh, while on this over four-month journey across the Oregon Trail. If you love history, you're going to get a kick out of this podcast. Rinker is, uh, a, is a character. He's really funny, and he's, he knows his history. Uh, so without further ado, Rinker Buck, The Oregon Trail. Rinker Buck, welcome to the show. Hey, it's great to be here. All right, so your book is The Oregon Trail, A New American Journey, and it is part memoir, part history book. And it's basically, it's your travel log of you and your brother in a covered wagon, pulled by mules, and you guys do The Oregon Trail. Uh, first off, right. this is crazy. Like, what inspired you to do this, and why did you think that was even a possibility? Well, um, what happened was I became... I've always written a lot about history, and I'm kind of uh, I'm one of these people that uh, couldn't decide what I wanted to do with my life, be a writer or be a historian. So I've kind of done both. And um, I happened to be out uh, working on an assignment as a journalist in Kansas, and uh, I ran across a stretch of the trail, and I, I walked the, There's a lot of original ruts left of the 2,100 mile trail. Um, about half of the original ruts are still there, and the rest is just a two-lane blacktop that you can follow very easily, and it's really still the Oregon Trail because it functions for those communities. 
the same way. But at any rate, I became fascinated by the trail after walking the ruts and stopping at a couple sites. And the reason was is that um, I don't really like the way we teach history in this country. And, you know, we, we never explain to kids. We, we tell them what the guy George Washington was, but we don't include the information that he was the richest guy in America. And he had, he had a lot of motivation to uh, separate from the British crown. So it amazed me when I got into trail history that so many of the myths uh, and romance and fantasy from Hollywood and so forth about the trail years and about the opening of the West were just plain inaccurate. So, for instance, women played a really critical role in uh, opening up the trail because there was a big cultural prejudice about uh, women crossing the trail. It was considered dangerous. And uh, one particular woman, Narcissa Whitman, who I write about a lot, really opened up the trail. Um, the Indians were friendly at first uh, until we started slaughtering the buffalo in such numbers that they realized the uh, end was near unless they became hostile. Um, religion played a much greater role in driving people to the trail uh, than anyone would ever tell you in a history book because historians tend to want to gloss over the fact that America was a very uncomfortable society, a very bitter society in the 19th century. There were huge religious battles over nonsensical doctrinal points in every small town. And people got sick of it, and they just they just decided, I'm going to move somewhere where I've got a little bit more religious elbow room. And a lot of the, uh, a lot of the wagon trains were actually formed by a group of Baptists, a group of Lutherans, and so forth. And it's hilarious to read the accounts because they get to a camping point and, oh, we've got to go another mile. I don't want to, I don't want to park for the night near those Methodists, you know. <laughs> so, um, and, and the uh, outfitters uh, were this classic American scammers. They, they overloaded, they forced the pioneers to overload the wagons, knowing full well that the pioneers would dump it off somewhere along the way. And then they, the outfitters could come along and pick it back up and bring it back to Independence or St. Joe and uh, resell it to the next group of suckers. Yeah. So the trail fascinated. Excuse me. I was saying that, yeah, like someone, like people would pack pianos. Yeah. 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 And, and right. They did pack pianos and you could literally, uh, by the 1850s, you could literally navigate all the way to California or Oregon along uh, the Oregon Trail. The first 1,000 miles of the California Trail is the Oregon Trail. And uh, just navigate your way just by the debris field. And that's literally true. So um, that fascinated me, and I wanted to uh, write a book about the real trail instead of the myth that was passed down to us as school children. And then I came across in one of my history books a, uh, a statement that the last documented crossing of the trail had occurred uh, in 1909. And I said to myself, well, boy, that's a much better book. If the trail hasn't been crossed in over 100 years, uh, why don't I just buy a team of mules and a covered wagon and, and go? And what happened was I had grown up on a horse farm where my dad was a was a wagon fancier. He was a horse and buggy guy. And we'd actually gone on a uh, covered wagon trip as kids just between our farm in New Jersey and Pennsylvania, a much more modest adventure. Uh, but you know how childhood memories are and everything. It just It just enabled me. It just empowered me to feel that I could do it. And so it was pretty simple. I bought a team of mules and an old restored wagon and everything. And we left with my brother, who's a much better horseman than I am. And it promptly stopped being simple 
the day we left. But <laughs> it simply formed the idea. Yeah, and we'll get into that. And I'm, I thought it was, I was, as I was reading this book, I learned so much about the Oregon Trail. And I'll admit, like, I did, before I read the book, I really didn't know much about the Oregon Trail. And I, I think mm-hmm. that's very common, too. And I think it's odd because, like you say in the book, it's one of the, it's one of the world's largest land migrations, right, that's ever happened in the history. Um, and it shaped the country, but we don't know much about it. Like, why does the Oregon Trail get overlooked in American history? So I think what happens is um, we sanitize a lot of uh, history. Uh, there's a guy named uh, Kim Lowen who's written a really excellent book called Lies My Teachers Tell Me. And he talks about this process as uh, heroification. In order to heroify someone um, and pass down a version of myth that um, school, school boards across the country accept you have to sort of present the side of that person uh, that's acceptable uh, to the American public and to the kind of people who buy textbooks. So the Oregon Trail, I think, kind of got lost out um, because the curriculum is there's so many other uh, important periods they have to deal with. But also, the historians really didn't want to deal with what really happened on the trail. Religious squabbling, huge armed battles, literally, between the Mormons and the um, non-Mormon Christians, um, a huge amount of scamming by the, uh, uh, by the outfitters, you know, very dishonest business practices like, you know, we'd see today or Ralph Nader would ran on about, uh, the pioneers knew they were, uh, drinking bad water that was causing dysentery, um, and also gave them cholera and killed them. Um, and there was actually enough medicine around, enough science around to begin to understand why that was so but they continued to drink the bad water because it was all they had. Things like that. And I, I think maybe the trail was just too complex, too violent, too difficult. Uh, all the things that I describe in my book, you know. Yeah. Pass on. What, what history, history book writers want to pass on is, is something that's simple, you know, a myth that's simple. They don't want questions at the end. They want to answer everything. And in fact, history is an enigma. It, it, sometimes there are not answers. Yeah, so it's sometimes it's much more complex and much more nuanced. Um, mm-hmm. So this is crazy. So if someone hasn't done this in over a hundred years, I imagine there were skills that you had to acquire, uh, mm-hmm. or relearn, or revive in order to make this happen. What sort of things did you have to teach yourself in order to make this uh, trip possible? There were all sorts of things: the art of um, wagon making and the art of driving mules has been lost. I mean, there's a reason it hasn't been crossed in a hundred years because nobody's been driving around in wagons for a hundred years. So little things like nobody could tell us, even all the Amish, you know, and people who use horses all the time, no one could tell us uh, how often we'd have to reshoe the horses, the mules. And we actually reshod them uh, five times. My, my uh, reshoeing bill, my blacksmithing bill was uh, $2,500 when the trip ended. Wow. Um, so we just had to leave, um, with that uncertainty and not know. And it turns out about 250 miles of continuous travel, uh, which, which is only two or three weeks. Um, and you better reshoe again. We had a really good wagon restorer in Kansas. The guy did a really great job getting our wagon together and designing, or I designed and he built for me something called a trail pup, which was a two wheel commissary cart that we towed behind the main covered wagon so that we wouldn't have to have, any motorized support. We could just carry all our provisions with us and a lot of water. But he had no idea. In fact, in the 19th century, 
um, you know, I later studied up on it, but in the 19th century, they always had an old shoe or an old piece of saddle leather or something on their wooden brake shoes uh, so that the wooden brake shoe, the oak brake shoe hitting the iron tire rim wouldn't wear through. And, uh, you know, our wagon guy said, he's, uh, we said, well, we think we're going to need brake linings in these. Those brakes, those wooden brakes will last you all the way to Oregon. Well, they didn't last us 100 miles. <laughs> so we had to find some thresher belt. Um, the Amish were absolutely convinced that we would hook our, our three mules up. We hooked up three abreast with something called a jockey stick, which you, you just have two horse lines and, uh, and then you connect the third mule just with a stick between the bits, which is how the Amish do it in their fields. And, and I was totally wrong, a hundred percent wrong. Uh, about three days after about three days on the trip, as soon as we got out of sight of the Amish, you know, we, uh, we called a, harness maker in uh, New Hampshire and said, hey, can you ship us three, three horse lines you know, to this following address? We'll be there in a week or something. And it changed the trip dramatically. So things like that. I mean, learning that, uh, I mean, there were stretches in Wyoming where it's 50 miles between the rivers and we had to carry all our water. We would have to go 50 miles in a single day to get to water. And everyone said, there's no way you can get 50 miles in a single day. You can't do it. You're going to have to have motorized support. And we said, well, we're not going to have motorized support. And, you know, I learned to navigate across the desert, straight across the desert, using certain landmarks and hawks and where the hawks were, because the hawks were always near where the prairie dogs are, and the prairie dogs are always near the river cultures, things like that. And we... we several days where we did 42, 50 miles because we had to get the water by the end of the day. We couldn't wake up without water in the morning to have enough water for our mules. Um, there were tra- There's a lot of places. The trail's pretty well marked across the country, but they don't always mark it at an intersection. So you come to a Y in the road and uh, the actual trail marker is another mile or two down. Well, with a covered wagon, that's, that's an hour's trip, and it's really hard to turn them around to go back because the guys who marked the trail do them with pickup trucks and ATVs and that kind of thing. So I had to learn to uh, dead reckon and land navigate. Uh, it was a mistake. We should have brought a horse along so that I could ride ahead and scout trail. I ended up scouting about 700 miles of trail on foot. This is something I never, you know, it's, I, I walked a third of the trail just to figure out where we were, you know. <laughs> and I guess the last thing I would say is, um, see, the, the pioneers had a covered wagon train for a reason. You have 50 wagons, 100 wagons, and you have all that labor. You've got all those men. You've got all the kids. You get to a steep place like California Hill uh, or Rocky Ridge, really dangerous places for a wagon. In, uh, one's in Nebraska, the other's in Wyoming. And, uh, you know, the pioneers unload the wagons. The kids and the young teenage girls and everything carry all the bedsteads and roll the barrels of pork and everything up the hill. Now you have a light wagon, you double team, you, you put two or three teams on a single wagon and pull up a light wagon, and you've got all that labor to do it. Stupid Rinker, the <laughs> dumbest jackass in the world, he goes, he goes, oh, well, well, you know, I'll figure that out when I get to California Hill. <laughs> and it was really brutal getting up those places because we didn't have a covered wagon train to help us. And I also figured out after we got to the top of California Hill, which is above the Platte River in uh, Brule, Nebraska, that I could very easily have gotten about a thousand pounds off that wagon, yeah. uh, leaving some hay behind because there was plenty of hay up on top. 
I can get rid of my water because, you know, water weighs eight pounds a gallon. You know, I could have gotten rid of about seven or 800 pounds of water, uh, left our feed behind everything because I knew there were ranches up on top of the plateau where I would be able to replenish that stuff. Or I could have gone back the next day with a pickup bar, a pickup truck or something, gotten all my hay and stuff. But, um, like a jack, I just let my brother talk me into, Hey, we can get up there. (laughs) <laughs> and then we got we got up to the first level, you know, and it's holy, eesh, we're not going to, whoa, you know. But somehow we struggled with it and we made it. So there were just tons of things that you couldn't learn before you left. You just had to teach yourself along the way. And the uh, the theme of the journey really for us was, and I talk about this in the book, is you got to learn to live with uncertainty. And if the art of horsemanship and traveling by covered wagon hasn't been done in a hundred years, there's all kinds of really important things like, you know, brake pads um, that you got to teach yourself along the way. Yeah. I love that theme of uncertainty because I think it's, it's something that uh, us in our 21st century uh, society and culture where anything we want, we can get at a push of a button, literally. Right. Um, we have so much certainty in our lives, and I feel like uh, our pioneer forebears, like they l- really learned how to manage or live with uncertainty. Yeah, and, and many of them had moved their farms three or four times, but by the time he was 21, Abraham Lincoln had lived on five different farms, and um, and his experience was by no means unusual. So people lived with uncertainty then. You know, you'd, you'd stake out a claim, you'd ranch it, you'd do whatever you had to, and five or six years later, Economic conditions had changed, and you know you had to do something else. So people learned to live with uncertainty, and I kind of feel sorry for our culture today, especially the millennials and the young kids, because the whole system has been geared up and distorted to give them certainty. You know, well, this is my major in college, and I have to do two internships, two, two student internships, which is basically a form of a culture. A corporate slavery, you know, like <laughs> you know, unpaid internships. And so they do that, and then and that means I can get a job at Google, or it's not Google, it'll be in some other entrepreneurial startup out in Silicon Valley, blah, blah, blah. And their whole life is everything's done. Well, we, oh, I know exactly what I'm going to be doing, you know. And uh, to me, that's that's a terrible way to live. You know, go off and take some adventure where you're not certain of the outcome. You get, you got you got to figure out the outcome. So our whole culture is based on knowing the outcome, predicting the outcome. And uh, what I learned on the covered wagon trip is there is no outcome. The outcome is the journey itself, you know? Yeah. And uh, you're not certain. I mean, I left, I, you know, my agent said to me, he said, hey, look, if your wheels break halfway through Nebraska, there's still probably a book here, you know? And, and I knew that was true. And I left. I had no idea whether we'd make it. I didn't know how we were going to cross the rivers. Uh, all kinds of things. And, uh, and you know, we had huge stretches of land across that were private ranches. It turned out the ranches were great and couldn't wait to see us and stuff like that. And um, it, it was just a new uncertainty every day. Yeah. And, and, and I guess looking great is that spirit. Yeah, and I guess it makes you uh, more resilient when things don't go the way you planned. Right? And you just bounce back. All right, well, I can't do anything about it. We'll go to plan B mm-hmm. now. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes there isn't a plan B. You just <laughs> figure out plan B as you go along. <laughs> like we came to this place called Dempsey Ridge. It was 8,300 feet. 
And in uh, a mile and a half, we had to drop down to uh, 6,000 feet along the Bear River in Idaho. It was sort of our big crossing of the Rockies. And uh, it was hugely dangerous. There was a 300-foot cliff uh, on the left side of this very narrow trail we had to follow. It's it's miraculous that we got down there without getting killed. We could easily have been killed. And because nobody knew, that was another big theme of, of the trip. Nobody knows. Nobody can tell us. We, we even stopped at the BLM office. Bureau of Land Management office um, nearby before we took on Dempsey Ridge, and and they go, well, you know, it's our land, it's it is government land, but we haven't been up there in a while, and I'm not quite sure what you're going to find, you know. <laughs> and um, so you just learn to live with uncertainty, and but the big thing for me is go ahead and make a decision and move forward. You can always reverse that decision tomorrow. Every decision is, is reversible. And we tend to live nowadays via you've got to sit down and put everything down on a piece of paper and do a spreadsheet on it and everything, advantages versus disadvantages, so forth, and you got to make the right decision. Well, no, you don't have to make the right decision. Yeah. We had a ball. We spent four months crossing the Oregon Trail. And made, I probably made a bad decision every day, and we got there. <laughs> Yeah, and I'm sure that that's, I mean, I'm sure a lot of the original uh, settlers, they probably wouldn't even have left if they tried to make sure, micromanage every aspect of the of their trip. They just probably wouldn't even have left because, like, oh, it's just too daunting. I, I can't do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and and we distort that in history because we, we sort of depict the pioneers as Oregon or bus, which, by the way, they didn't even have that on their wagons. But, um, what would happen actually was amazing when you get to places like Parting of the Ways where the trail would split for going to California, down through Nevada and Utah, and or going to Oregon up to Idaho, uh, Northwest. And it was amazing how many people actually made their decision, all right, let's go to California instead of Oregon. Right there, that morning. <laughs> you know? they, they didn't leave knowing what they were doing. I mean, imagine, you got your whole family on board. You, you know, you, and, and so there were about five or six different places along the trail where people go, well, you know, all right, let's go to, let's go to California. We weren't planning on that, but let's do it. You know? Um, so these people that we, that we worship as our, our myth creators are, are kind of, uh, icons. We give to them attributes that they didn't really have. Yeah. And we, we sort of, I mean, I think in the process, you, you take away something. I think it's actually kind of admirable or it makes it more relatable because I, I could totally see mm-hmm. myself doing that. Like, okay, this is my original plan. I don't want to do that anymore. I'm going to go this way. Uh, mm-hmm. Makes it much more relatable. So here's a question I have. So when people talk, here's kind of the myth of the Oregon Trail. It's not just one trail, right? Like there's multiple right. Oregon trails. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. It's a collection of trails. And again, it's the way history is taught. They they got to simplify everything. There was a single Oregon Trail, blah, blah, blah. Um, I guess because they, they feel that kids need certainty. They need to know exactly what it was, and even if it wasn't that, instead of giving kids complexity. So what happened was, in, in the Buffalo days, you know, the Buffalo crossed and the Buffalo found this crossing uh, on this, along the Sweetwater River called South Pass the continental divide there. And it's just this very gradual climb up and climb down. There's no big V. It's not like what you traditionally think of as a pass. And the wildlife knew 
from the land, yeah, that that was a way to get across the Rockies to find other feeding grounds. The Indians followed the, the Shoshone, the Sioux, so forth, followed the buffalo across, and they always knew about Top Pass. And um, in about 1802, 1804, that, that period, when the, a little later maybe, uh, when the historians were uh, pioneering the fur routes, the uh, fur trappers, you and, and going through the Rockies, they learned about it from the Indians. The covered wagon uh, wagon masters learned about the south, the route to South Pass along the Platte River and the Sweetwater River from the fur trappers. So there was this continuity along the way. But once they got to South Pass, well, first of all, before South Pass in Nebraska, people were on the north side of the river, the south side of the river, fifteen or twenty miles could separate them. There were all kinds of shortcuts once they got to Wyoming. Then once they got through South Pass, which pretty much everybody took the same route, between being there and the Idaho line, um, so central Wyoming to Idaho, the trail was 150 miles wide. There was a lander cutoff, which the federal government built. There was the sublet cutoff. There was the Kinney cutoff. There was the Salt Creek cutoff. And then there were the main ruts that ran down to Fort Bridger in the old rendezvous country, which was the fur trapper route. And then you get into... Um, Idaho and so forth, and there were tons and tons of cutoffs because if the Indians were uh, not very hospitable during one year or another, they might go on the south side uh, of the Snake River and so forth. So there's 40 major cutoffs. We took a lot of them. We took this sublet cutoff. Um, a flood uh, at a place called Willow Creek blocked us from going. We couldn't cross Willow Creek, so we had to take the Seminole cutoff. Uh, which I knew was there, but isn't really marked nowadays, but I, I managed to find it. And the whole thing was, the Oregon Trail was a collection of trails, it's a collection of cutoffs. Most of the cutoffs, the Seminole Cutoff, the Sublet Cutoff, the Lander Road, were more traveled, were more heavily traveled after they were blazed than the original Oregon Trail routes themselves. So... I explained all of that in the book, and it was actually one of the biggest revelations for me because I thought, too, oh, just one trail. Yeah. No, it's it's an associated ter- terrain. It's a broad avenue to the West that the pioneers followed to new futures in either the Pacific Northwest or California. Okay, so one of the uh, the main characters in the book, it's you and your brother. And we'll talk about your brother in a bit because he's a, he's a character. Yeah. But the other ones that I, I grew to love were the mules. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And it, it's funny because like you used mules and I'm accustomed to seeing these, you know, picturesque pictures of uh, paintings of uh, covered wagons being pulled by oxen. And if, you know, I pl- I'm a mm-hmm. child of the 80s. I played Oregon Trail. You use oxen in the video game. Mm-hmm. So why right. mules? Okay, so oxen were uh, probably uh, slightly more, some historians would say maybe about a 60% more common uh, draft animal than uh, than mules. Horses were eliminated, and and that's why, you know, all these stupid John Wayne movies, Wagon Train and all this, you know, they have these beautifully matched Belgian or Percheron horses. There's no way you would use a horse, uh, and I explain all that in the book, because they just don't have the stamina, and they've got about 1,000 extra pounds of weight that the mules don't have. Um, the oxen were more common, uh, but only by maybe a, a slight fraction. Um and the reason I didn't want to use the oxen is, is you got to walk along beside them and crack the bull whip and everything. And, um, you know, I know, I know equines. I don't know. I'd never traveled with mules before, but I figured I could 
learned to drive mules. But uh, you know, I couldn't imagine old Winker standing there, you know, harnessed and yoking up Sally, <laughs> the ox, you know, and talking her into it. Um, the other reason that mules were preferred by people who could afford them, the oxen were cheaper, but mules were preferred because they're a lot faster. Mule travels that uh, uh, you, you spend most of the day at a, a pretty, what they call a fast walk. That's about four miles, 4.5 miles an hour. Um, so you can do 25, 30 miles a day pretty easily. Uh, oxen move at about 2.5 miles an hour, and they're just very ponderous and slow. They're very strong and very reliable, but but uh, ponderous and slow. So, um, and there's a whole chapter in the book that probably shouldn't waste the time here, but there's a whole chapter in the book about how the mule developed and how it was really the mule that um, that made America. The, the mule created America, and it's a very unique story about how they got here and how we were finally able to learn to breed them and so forth. Yeah, I thought that was one of the most interesting parts of the book because I, because I, people, people, you know, being in the South, people typically think of the mule sort of like this like hick thing, right? Like, uh, it's what, right. Poor, but like, right. like most of the mules in America, right? Am I correct? Like, they came from George Washington's original stock. Right, right. Um, after the American Revolution, um, uh, America was finally able to um, begin importing these things called the mammoth jacks, which is what you breed to a female horse to get um, a big draft mule. And uh, we did not have, as a country, we did not have access to the Mammoth Jacks prior to the American Revolution because the two countries that controlled that breed, which was um, Spain and France, uh, wouldn't wouldn't allow the trade of those Mammoth Jacks. It wouldn't allow any to come to the country because they were, of course, engaged in not only a war, but a trade war with Britain, and they were going to help the British colonies. As soon as the revolution was over and George Washington was now a global hero for having trounced the enemies of uh, Spain and France, the um, the royal stables of both countries essentially just sent us as many mammoth jacks as we wanted, and, it was, and they sent them to George Washington, and he's the guy that got the, the mule started. And they weren't a southern animal either, even though they all started down there. Um if you go back and look at the Canal era, which was this glorious, wonderful era in American history, up north, everywhere else, we actually had more canals up north than, than there were anywhere else in the country. All the old pictures you see, all the old mythologies, all the old, you know, Erie Canal song and stuff that kids used to learn in school, um, show mules in the, in the north pulling the canal boats. So, so mules were everywhere. Yeah, and like they're still used today. Uh, and the, you mentioned in, in the military still has like a mule team that they take them out to Afghanistan to, to yeah. cross. The, um, the military actually has um, two separate locations uh, for um, mules at this point, one in Alabama and one in uh, in California. And they keep up uh, riding mules, packing mules, et cetera, because there's, you could always get a crisis like we had in Afghanistan where you've got to get supplies in there and uh, you can't drop them in, whatever. And, uh, in fact, some of our earliest attacks on the Taliban were, uh, were done uh, with, with the aid of mule packs. So the American military still maintains them. And they've actually come back in vogue. They're a very fashionable animal now. Uh, people are breeding really fancy, fancy walking mules and all this kind of stuff. Again, yeah. I get into that in the book, and it's pretty fascinating. Yeah, it is really. It made me want to get a mule. It made me want yeah. to get a mule. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, so yeah. And they, um, what was your, what was your typical day? Like, I mean, were there some days like, were they all, was it one of those things like days just sort of bled into days or were there, was every day pretty much something like you woke up and like something could happen today that could just completely Mm -hmm. throw this trip off? I think the, um, I think the days were a felicitous blend of, uh, monotony and then, and then, uh, something beautiful or very funny would happen. Uh, we would get up, we would wake up, um, I slept in the covered wagon and my brother slept in a bedroll on the desert floor. We, uh, we, we made 79 camps on the trip. I'd say about half of them were at original pioneer encampments, places like Plum Creek and Rock Creek Station and Independence Rock, all the places the pioneers camped. Uh, it turns out the reasons that I explained in the book, uh, pretty much to become state public parks. And uh, so, but they're very beautiful places and oftentimes very, very remote places that the Oregon Trail country is still gorgeously undeveloped, most of it. And uh, you can wake up in the morning and see the same things that the pioneers did. So we get up uh, around uh, 5.36. I actually woke up earlier and I would uh, make some breakfast for my brother and I feed the mules, then we'd harness. It takes about half an hour, 45 minutes to harness and hitch the wagon. And then uh, we would often go, we found it by, early in the trip, we found it by 5.30 or 6 in the evening. We'd done our allotted 25 miles for the day. But we became kind of mile obsessed. We just wanted to make sure we were making enough progress. So, uh between six and nine is actually a beautiful time to travel with mules because in the evening, because it's cool. And so we do another 10 miles in the evening. And so that would get us into camp pretty much maybe an hour before sunset, maybe sometimes at sunset. And then, uh, you're pretty exhausted. You're, you're tired from sitting on a wagon seat, uh, being in the sunlight there in Nebraska, uh, well off to the West. There's always about a 35, sometimes even a 40 mile an hour wind on your face, um, which is something the pioneers battled quite a bit. And uh, you just tired, 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 exhausted, exhausted. So we make up a dinner of Hormel chili, no beans. That's basically <laughs> <laughs> that's what we subsisted on for four months. And then uh, I, I, I collapsed into my bed with my boots on, uh, literally. I never did the dishes at night. I always in the morning. I was too exhausted. Um, so there was a monotony of it to that, except, you know, once a week we'd stop for a couple of days, give the meals a rest. But then in the middle of the day, you'd come on some spectacular place like California Hill or uh, Inscription Rock, or we had this three-day adventure where we had to get through uh, something called the South Hills of Eastern Wyoming, where the trail isn't marked. The trail is there, but it's never marked. Yeah. It's been all country. And so I had to get up every morning and climb to the top of the nearest peak and figure out what was my compass course to stay on the Platte River and that sort of stuff. So it was a combination of monotony and just absolute fun, thrilling stuff. You know, a lot of nights we'd get to a ranch and people would say, we're, we're making you a steak dinner, you know, get yourself all settled and come on into the house, you know. So combination of monotony, beauty, and fun. That's awesome. Um, so your brother went along with you, and originally when you were going to do this trip, you weren't planning on bringing your brother along. 
Um, mm-hmm. What do you come to find out? He served it. He was like an asset. Like he was like, he made the trip possible. And I love it. He's, mm-hmm. he's just really funny. Can you tell us a little about your brother and what skills he brought to your trip to make it possible? Yeah. Well, anybody who complains, anybody who complains about their family and, you know, filial relationships or sibling relationships, they ought to read this book because it's the kind of thing that's like, you don't, you don't know what it's, what it's like to have it bad. So my brother and I grew up, we were um, on this horse farm in New Jersey. We were a big family, 11 kids. So that, and I was at the top and he was more in the middle. And what happens in families like that is big families is, the different siblings have completely different growing up experiences because the parents are at a completely different point, uh, say with the older kids and with the younger kids. So, uh, in my family, Nick was the guy that turned out. There's a couple others too, but Nick was one of the ones that turned out. Uh, you know, I went to college and considered myself sort of a refined person. And you know, you come to my house and I have antiques. You go into Nick's house if it's, if it's an antique, it's really an antique. And uh, he he's basically uh, sort of a defiantly, you know, assertively blue collar guy. And uh, he builds houses and fixes up barns and stuff like that for people. Um, but he's also extraordinarily adroit at uh, wagon mechanics. He's one of the few people I've ever heard of. He made a living for 10 years, a very good living, uh, driving uh, a slaves at a New Hampshire ski resort to cart people around. And then during the summer, he was a fisherman in Alaska. He worked in the Alaska fish, fishery. So he has this brilliant mechanical background and new driving experience and everything. Um, but the big personality difference between us is he just considers, you know, anybody who's wasted their life to the extent of getting a college education, it's just, they're inherently stupid, you know? Like, he was talking to a friend of his once I heard overheard it because he has a loud voice. And his friend was saying, well, I don't know, I met your brother, Rico, he seems like a nice guy, you know? It's obvious that he reads a lot of books. And Nick said to him, uh, oh, no, it's much worse than that, much worse. He's he writes books, you know. <laughs> so, so uh, we're basically incompatible, very different people, you know. And a lot of the book was about, and yes, it's true, without him, I wouldn't have been able to make it because he could fix things, you know, our wheels would break, parts of the wagon would break, the mules would run away, all this stuff. And Nick uh, could fix them and handle the mules and stuff a lot better than, than I could. But there was a clear division of labor. Uh, but the, the point is, is that we had to conquer our personality differences. I had to learn to just ignore the, uh, the insults and the behavior and, and so forth. Um, and he had to learn to endure, you know, my, uh, from his standpoint, unimaginable, unimaginable stupidity that results from a college education. Um, and, and the book is really about how two siblings who have a lot in, common, but who have very different personalities, conquer those differences uh, to make the journey happen. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, and you had to, right? You had no choice. And I'm sure that's why, uh, you know, that happened with the early travelers as well, the early pioneers. Uh, it probably was a lot of personality differences, but they're like, all right, got to get over that because we got to make this happen. Whereas today, if you don't like your sibling, well, you can just go to another state or go to another room if you're still living with your parents. 
Yeah, it's a good point because uh, it's a good point because it's something we don't talk about with the pioneers. There was a brutal calculus of personality involved, a brutal calculus of personality that made American history. What if you get in your Civil War union and you don't get along with the guys? What if you get in on the Oregon Trail and you don't get along with people because so many people were randomly, diversely thrown together? Uh, it's coping skills. It's coping skills that makes you successful. And uh, the book, the book's about that a lot. Yeah. So, I mean, what was the end of the trip like? Um, so, you, 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 four months. Was it like, did you like sense, like feel a sense of accomplishment or I can imagine me doing something like that and I would get, you know, be really excited for the ending and then the ending would come and I'd be like, well, that wasn't it's sort of anticlimactic. I mean, what was the, the end of the trip like for you? The end of the trip was, was a great feeling of accomplishment because so many people thought I was crazy to do it. And, and they said, you know, you're going to, you don't really know what you're doing, you know, um, yeah, you've driven wagons and all that, but you just, you just, you know, you don't know what you're doing. You're not brutal and rugged enough and so forth. Um, and so it was a great feeling of accomplishment that we actually got a team of mules and a covered wagon to Oregon, despite all the hazards we ran into. We haven't talked about the times the wagon broke and, and things, but it was mixed with depression actually, because I, I wanted to live out on that trail forever. I loved, you know, the romance of being um, out in this beautiful, open plains and Rocky Mountains of the American West, which are really quite unchanged. I mean, they're they're just the same beautiful vistas that the pioneers saw. And, um, sorry, there's an airplane taking off here. (laughs) Sorry. No worries. People, People listening to the podcast you know that I'm also a pilot will find it enjoyable that I happen to be doing this podcast uh, at the end of my favorite runway. <laughs> so um, so it was mixed with depression because I just didn't want this. It was a very miracle, beautiful, rugged, um, glorious adventure. Um, so it was mixed with depression, but also happiness because I found a really great uh, kind of retirement home for the mules. Someone wanted to take those mules over from us. And, um, that was a very good thing that I didn't have to sell them and split up the team. And then maybe the last source of depression is, and you, you probably know this a little bit, uh, it's, uh, oh crap. Now I got to go home and write this book. The book's going <laughs> to be tougher than all right. Well, I mean, okay. I just had one last, one last question before, sure. before we go. I mean, what was, you know, this is the Art of Manliness podcast. What was, did you learn anything about being a man, right, uh, while going on this trip? Or were there some, was there some life lesson that you took from this trip that you, you're carrying with you today? Sure. Uh, first of all, I think that, um, I think that my brother and I are really, really rugged. And uh, we, we just have this ability to just go on all, all day and no matter how hot we are and how much sun and wind is affecting us. Because, we grew up on a farm and, and that sort of thing, but I don't talk about that um, boastfully. It, it was just the combination of being with a brother with whom you sort of share a lot of values and family legacy um, made it possible to have the endurance to cross the trail. But the second side of it is is that um, I, I think there's, um, I don't want to say the wrong thing and offend women, but I think there's something about 
the female sensibility that they are more interested in um, expressing vulnerability and and not asserting that they know they know the answer. And something very important happens to you when you do become vulnerable and you don't know the answer, which which really happened a lot on the show. I just well, how the hell are we going to get across this river now? It's overflowed. What am I going to do? Um, and in the sort of back of my mind, I remember, well, there is a cutoff in this area that I might be able to take it. Fine. Um, but what happens when you express vulnerability and what happens when you adopt an attitude of, I don't really know, instead of this manly thing, is that your mind suddenly opens up to all the possibilities of other things that you could think of or try. Um, in other words, whatever that chemical is that flows through your body, the opposite of adrenaline, say, that makes you open to exploring things, um, actually opens up the intellectual possibilities of what you can achieve in this situation. And so I learned that there was a, a very manly side uh, of course, just endurance, not worrying about uh, taking showers. You know, it took us 29 days to cross Wyoming, and we only had three showers the whole time. Um, perseverance, being able to hold mules back when they're trying to run away on you and stuff. But that was only half of it. The other half of it was not being arrogant, not being masculine, not being uh, certain, and just allowing situations to define themselves and to have a very open inquiring mind. So that's probably, I'm not saying that's the big change, but it was certainly the, the big personality split that was reinforced by traveling the Oregon Trail. Fantastic. Well, Rieger, your book is fantastic. I'm going to, I want all my readers to go out there and get it because it's just a fun, fun read and you're going to learn a lot along the way. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. My guest today was Rinker Buck. He's the author of the book, The Oregon Trail, A New American Journey. You can find that on Amazon.com. And really, if you love history, go pick this book up. I learned a lot about American history through this book that I didn't know about. And it's just a fun, fun read. I mean, I laughed out loud several times while reading this book. Again, Oregon Trail, go check it out. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. When you visit a state as big and diverse as Texas, there are a million different trips you can take. Let's say you've got an appetite for whitewater kayaking. You can get your own. So this is why they call it Devil's River. Trip to Texas. Or maybe you have an actual appetite. I'll take a pound of brisket, six ribs, uh, three links of sausage, and a, a piece of pecan pie. Trip to Texas. Go to TravelTexas.com slash get your own for the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. What makes a Carnival Cruise fun? A picture-perfect beach day in Cozumel or a tropical adventure in the Mayan ruins. 
with snorkel excursion for good measure. A delectable surf and turf at sea, topped off with craft cocktails at Alchemy Bar. Now, get some Z's. You never know what tomorrow will bring. Why? Because no one does fun like Carnival. Carnival. Choose fun. Ships Registry, Bahamas, Panama.